This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. There's been more than a decade of litigation, two trips to the Second Circuit and one trip to the Supreme Court. But the court is giving Goldman Sachs another chance to stop a shareholder securities fraud lawsuit. The question is whether another trip to the Second Circuit will make a difference. A decade ago, investors filed a class action lawsuit alleging they were deceived to the tune of as much as $13 billion by Goldman's repeated public assurances that it was being vigilant about avoiding conflicts of interest. But Goldman said those assurances were so generic they couldn't possibly have been responsible for propping up the stock price. In the majority opinion, Justice Amy Coney Barrett said, Both sides in the case agreed that the generic nature of a misrepresentation often will be important evidence of a lack of price impact, echoing her statements during the oral arguments. So now we are left, you know, in this position where you've both moved more closely together, and now we have to decide what to do about the Second Circuit's opinion. And because Barrett ruled that it was unclear whether the Second Circuit properly considered the generic nature of Goldman's alleged misrepresentations, the court sent the case back to the Second Circuit to revisit the issue. Joining me is securities litigator Mark Rifkin, a partner at Wolf Haldenstein. Start by telling us what the issue was in the case. Sure. So the Supreme Court was asked to decide two questions in the case. The, the first question they were asked to answer is whether the court should consider the generic nature of an alleged misstatement or omission in deciding whether the presumption of reliance, the basic presumption of reliance has been rebutted. And then the second question the court was asked to decide is whether the defendants bear the burden of proof or merely a burden to produce evidence to rebut that presumption. What did the court decide? So on the first question, the court said that the dispute about whether the generic nature of a misrepresentation is to be considered at the class certification stage. That question evaporated because the plaintiff and the defendant agreed that whether a statement is generic is a consideration that the court should make at the class certification stage because the more generic a statement is, the less likely it is to have some price impact. And that is relevant to class certification. So that was an outcome, although it wasn't really much of a decision because, as the court said, there wasn't much of a dispute at the end of the day. And then on the second question, the court said that the defendant does bear the burden of proof, not merely the burdens of producing evidence in order to try to rebut the basic presumption of reliance. So both sides seem to say that they were pleased with the decision. Yes. Well, I think that there's a little bit of room for both sides to be pleased. But on the whole, I think this is this is a bigger victory for the plaintiff's side of these cases than it is for the defendant's side of these cases, because Goldman was asking for a decision that would have substantially changed the way uh, Rule 23 is applied in securities cases. So the the plaintiff gets the claim, I think, the bigger victory because I think the plaintiffs faced a higher risk going in. But as I expected, this was largely a decision that upheld prior precedent. And the court said, we mean what we say when we say that the presumption is valid 
and this is how it's going to be followed. So I think there's, you know, a little bit for everybody in the decision, but a bigger, a bigger victory for the plaintiffs than for the defendants. So it goes back to the Second Circuit. Didn't the Second Circuit already consider the generic nature of the misrepresentation? Well, I think the Second Circuit did, and I think the Second Circuit gave it more than sufficient consideration, and Justice Sotomayor dissented from that part of the decision that remanded back to the Second Circuit. But I guess in an abundance of caution, the Supreme Court sent it back to the Second Circuit for further consideration. And maybe that's, you know, something of a nod to Judge Sullivan, who was the dissenting voice in in the Second Circuit on what was in the Second Circuit, a second appeal. So this goes back now for reconsideration of the second appeal, but I don't think the outcome's going to be any different the second time around on that on that second appeal. I think that the court has been satisfied that that the statements were specific enough in the context of Goldman's overall presentation of its business. And I think that's the relevant part here. The statements themselves, although they were generally of a generic nature. They were specific enough in the context of Goldman's business that they would be material to investors who were considering buying Goldman stock. So, Mark, in 2010, the Securities and Exchange Commission sued Goldman, accusing it of creating and selling Abacus without disclosing that the hedge fund Paulson and Company helped pick the underlying securities and bet against the vehicle. Goldman later paid $550 million to settle with the SEC. Though it didn't admit wrongdoing, the firm said it made a mistake in not disclosing the Paulson role. Explain that to me. How do you make a mistake, but that's not wrongdoing? Well, I, I think that's a compromise between the SEC and Goldman. I think Goldman was unprepared to admit that it really violated any obligations either to customers or to investors, because it's so important to Goldman's business model that customers can trust it, that they had no choice but to insist that it be characterized as nothing more than a mistake. And that's why, by the way, I think that's why the statements, even though they are generally generic kinds of statements, are important in the context of Goldman's business. Goldman depends upon its credibility and its integrity to do the business it does, to be able to attract the clients it attracts, to get the kind of investors it gets. Goldman has to have a pristine reputation. And so the statements about its business and how it operates its business are in fact material here. I don't think they're just throwaway lines in a public document. I think they're important. And that's why Goldman that's why Goldman couldn't admit to any real wrongdoing in settling with the SEC. So if this goes to trial, will will the jury hear about the settlement? I think the jury has a right to hear about the prosecution and the settlements, yes. And, and Goldman will argue, because they didn't admit any wrongdoing, that their probative value is, is outweighed by the risk of prejudice. 
but ultimately a judge is going to decide whether that's true or not. And I, I think that, I think that it would be um, important for jurors to know that Goldman was accused of the wrongdoing and uh, ultimately settled those claims. Leave it to Goldman to say, well, we settled because it was cheaper than fighting. And, and let the jury decide whether that's a, a credible explanation or not. I'm generally of the view that, you know, jurors are entitled to make those kinds of decisions. And it is unusual that Goldman admitted that it made a, quote, mistake. Well, more and more we're finding that, that there's pressure on the part of regulators to um, to insist on an admission of wrongdoing. And, and for Goldman to admit a mistake, yes, I think it's pretty extraordinary. But remember, this was something that Goldman really couldn't afford to lose. There's no way they could have run that risk. It would have been a bet the farm kind of a case for Goldman to, to fight. And, and I think they, they had to do what they did in order to be able to continue to operate the way they do. And, and that's, that's why I think the statements they made that are at issue in, in the case the Supreme Court decided are so vitally important to investors. What about the partial dissent of Justice Gorsuch uh, joined by Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito? Yeah, I I think that uh, I I think that they're swimming upstream. I, I think the the, the court the, the majority decision, um, Justice Barrett's majority decision, is is spot on. And when when the court said in Basic and in Halliburton too that the defendant may rebut the presumption of reliance by showing that the misrepresentation did not affect the public price for the stock. That's not merely a burden of production. That's a burden of proof. And I think uh, Justice Gorsuch with Justice Thomas and Justice Alito uh, joining in, in the dissent, I think they're looking to change the precedent. And, and I don't think the Supreme Court is ready to do that. And, and June, you know, I've said for many years that even as this Supreme Court becomes progressively more conservative on more and more issues, they have consistently maintained a very neutral approach to class certification questions. And this is another example of that. I think the, I think the court's decision on that second question, that the, the burden of proof is on the defendant, not merely the burden of production, is a it's a middle of the road uh, decision that continues to apply the law the way the court has for many 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 years and and Justice Gorsuch wanted to move that uh, move that uh, outcome to a different uh, to a different playing field and and the majority said no. And so this court, despite being labeled a business friendly court has has been not so business friendly in class certification cases? I think that that's correct. I, I think this court has been neutral in class certification decisions for many, many, many years. And I think that that trend has been um, prevalent even as the court has has moved to the right on a number of issues, not just business-related issues, but all sorts of issues. This is an area where the court sees and recognizes the the utility of uh, of class certification, 
and and is not going to radically change the balance of power between plaintiffs and defendants under Rule 23 in in business oriented cases. And and so this is this is one in a long line of cases that I think are are neutral in their approach to Rule 23 and class certification. And so this was a, a nod also to to stare decisis, observing precedent. That's exactly right, and and that's why I think um, Justice Gorsuch could not could not gather enough support for um, for for his position, at least uh, in the dissent, to change the the approach on um, uh, on the on the burden of proof to rebut the presumption. I think this is this is stare decisis right up and down the line from the first question to the second question. I think the court has simply continued to apply the law the same way it has for decades. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Mark. That's securities litigator Mark Rifkin, a partner at Wolf Haldenstein. In a splintered decision, the Supreme Court left intact a board that has invalidated more than 2,000 patents, resolving constitutional issues by giving a presidentially appointed official more power to overturn the board's decisions. Joining me is Harold Krant, a professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law. Harold, tell us what the court's decision turned on. The case turned on how much authority do uh, administrative judges have. In other cases, the, the court has held that administrative judges exercise authority, uh, but they should be considered inferior officers because they don't have binding final authority. And what made this case sort of in between was that these judges do have binding final authority in their decisions, but they're subject to an array of regulatory controls by the director of the Patent and Trademark Office. So the case kind of fell in between some of the prior precedents, and it turned on how clear of a line needs to be drawn between the president and his appointment authority and individuals exercising significant authority in the executive branch. And Chief Justice Roberts relied upon originalist thinking and his view of the unitary presidency to say that because there's final decision-making authority in these judges, they have to be subject to presidential appointment in order to square what's going on with the idea of a unitary executive. And I think that clearly shows that in Chief Justice Roberts' mind, it's important to have strong executive branch controls by the president, which suggests that maybe we're going to see that the court will outlaw these so-termed independent agencies, which have been in existence for hundreds of years. Independent agencies are defined by having a head who is protected from the plenary removal authority of the president. And so we're seeing a lot of cases in the lower courts, one on the Supreme Court doctrine, which sort of questions when the president has to have plenary removal authority over individuals in the executive branch. And Chief Justice Roberts has been quite clear here that he's not minimalist with respect to that kind of issue of presidential control. And I think his decision in Arthrex is consistent with his prior decisions that the president has to have removal authority and appointment authority over any over most individuals exercising considerable authority in the executive branch. The chief was very creative in the remedy he constructed. Tell us about that. The majority crafts a unique remedy and says that instead of having to sort of change the structure of the administrative patent judges, the court will have, take the initiative of changing the statute so that the 
director of the Patent and Trademark Office can now review the administrative patent judge's decisions before they can become final. And some of the justices criticized the chief for being sort of adventurous in rewriting a statute and actually being a kind of a judicial maximalist in deciding the court had the power to remix various elements of the statute together in order to sustain its constitutionality. Uh, Justice Thomas in dissent um, would have just said that there was nothing constitutionally infirm about the structure whatsoever because he looked at all the duties exercised by the administrative patent judges and said, you know, taken as a whole, uh, we should be able to consider these individuals as inferior officers, meaning that they exercise significant authority under the laws of the United States, um, but they're not so powerful and so influential that the president must have appointment authority over them. How often does the Supreme Court rewrite statutes? The Supreme Court has to rewrite statutes to a certain extent under severability analysis. The court asks if one section of an act is struck down because it's unconstitutional, can the remainder of the statute survive? And in terms of doctrine, the court asks, what would Congress prefer, to strike down the entire statute or to keep the part of the statute that was not struck down? And that's known as separability analysis. But in this case, the court decided that Congress would have wanted, in essence, the statute to be left as it is, but by taking another part of the statute and changing it, even though that was never challenged before the court. So in essence, the court took away some authority, different authority from the administrative patent judges to ensure that they could be considered inferior officers and therefore that the structure of the statute would be upheld. So it's a very sort of creative use of the severability analysis in order to uphold um, the constitutional status of these administrative patent judges. And that was the creative remedy forged by the Chief Justice, um, but it is a change from the typical severability analysis that we see. Well, there are no hardening coalitions on the court. So from that perspective, I think the Supreme Court has taken a step towards establishing some continuous independent uh, reputation. I mean, the, the right is, is being a little upset with each other, and indeed, the at the two ends, it's it's Alito is least often in the majority, Justice Alito, and Justice Kavanaugh is most often in the majority so far. And we have even the last couple of days where you know, Justice Thomas writes a liberal dissent chastising Chief Justice Roberts' opinion as being overly formalistic in finding that the administrative patent judges had to be classified as superior officers. Or rather, Justice kind of took something of a surprise, a more functionalist approach, and said, in light of all the factors and how powerful these judges are, um, we should think of them as being inferior officers and therefore have no problem with the appointments clause in terms of how they are appointed, and that would have satisfied the entire case. Justice Thomas is outflanking even some of the liberals on the court. Um, at the same time, Justice Thomas did write the majority opinion in the Nestle's case, which had to do with the scope of the alien tort statute. In that case, he had a more conservative view um, than the rest of the court. But those are just two examples of how fractured the court has been. Justice Alito has chided the majority in dissent, both in the Obama foster care case, for not taking the opportunity to strike more boldly on behalf of 
the conservative interests. In one case, striking down Obamacare. In the other case, sort of uh, establishing a firmer right to religion in the foster care case. Uh, so he's sort of being intemperate, saying, hey, this is our time. We have to move forward. And his colleagues on, on the right are not taking the cue and having taking more incrementalist decisions. And so far, um, uh, Justice Barrett has been more as an ally of Chief Justice Roberts' incrementalism, as we saw in the foster care case out of Philadelphia, um, as we saw in the Obamacare case. And so there's no stable coalition. We don't see a very marked shift to the right for the court. Um, rather, it's really been a more sort of modestly conservative court uh, to date. Have you ever seen Justice Thomas sort of swing back and forth this way? Um, I was very surprised at his uh, decision today in, in Arthrex, um, and I think others will be as well. And uh, But he's always taken somewhat of a unique view. He, he doesn't uh, necessarily follow the teachings of others or the leanings of others, and not right to be sort of doctrinaire or overly formalistic with respect to the Appointments Clause, and he was felt free to articulate his views despite what his colleagues said. During the confirmation hearings for the new justices, the last three, there was a lot of talk about originalism, textualism. Do you see those three following that? They are. They are all following originalism. There was a great deal of, of uh, invocations of the framers in the most recent um, decisions, but they don't agree on what lessons to draw from the framers, and they don't agree when they should rely upon the framers as opposed to, for instance, the plain language of the statute. So those differences amongst the sort of conservative justices, in combination with Chief Justice Roberts' insistence on a kind of slower, uh, minimalist approach, has meant so far we don't have a united rightward uh, shift to the court. And it'll be interesting to see in the coming term whether that will hold, but that's certainly been very uh, noticeable so far. Let's turn to a decision last week where the court gave companies a broader shield against lawsuits by victims of overseas atrocities and rejected accusations that Nestle and Cargill were complicit in the use of child slavery on Ivory Coast cocoa farms. So the justices took the case in order to examine whether the alien tort statute could apply to a corporate defendant as opposed to an individual. And the theory was that corporate defendants weren't very prevalent back in 1789, so that Congress may have intended only to include individuals as defendants within the scope of the act. But they changed their minds after oral argument, and the court decided eight to one on a different theory. The court held instead that the plaintiffs had not shown a sufficient nexus to the acts complained of to the United States. And in that case, there were Mali citizens who allegedly were hauled into slavery to work in for Nestle and Cargo and other sort of food manufacturers in Ivory Coast. And they sued Cargill, a U.S. corporation and the U.S. subsidiary of Nestle's in the United States, arguing that aiding and abetting childhood slavery should be recognized as a international tort in violation of the law of na- nations, and therefore subject to suit under the alien tort statute. The court, however, held, at least eight of the justices, held that there had to be 
more conduct than just sort of having a place of business in the United States, like Cargill and Nestle's did, more than just general corporate presence, more than just corporate affairs, that the actual planning or carrying out of the duties had to take place in the United States as well. So practically speaking, the court has shut the door even more firmly against future suits under the alien tort statute because the plaintiffs have to show such a strong connection between conduct in the United States and the acts that allegedly are against the law of nations. Interestingly, in the decision is that a majority of the court seemed to come to an agreement that corporate defendants can be sued under the alien tort statute, but nonetheless, they decided the case on a different ground. And a minority of the justices said that we can no longer find any kind of new violations of international law that were unknown to the framers in 1789. And Justice Thomas said that only those three areas that have been recognized are interference with ambassadors, interference with safe passages, and interference with shipping rights through piracy. And so somewhat counterintuitively, a number of the justices would say, we will only recognize torts in those three areas, and we won't even admit of a tort of something like slavery or a tort of genocide, because shockingly, that wasn't recognized back in 1789. But nonetheless, the court majority does not make that holding. Thanks, Hal. That's Harold Grant of the Chicago Kent College of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com/podcast/law. And please join me every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. 